This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast and the New Books in Israel Studies channel on that podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and I am honored beyond words to be in dialogue today with my guest, Dr. Yael Halevi Weiss. Yael is chair of the Department of Jewish Studies and Associate Professor of English and Jewish Studies at McGill University in Montreal. We will be discussing her new book, The Retrospective Imagination of Aleph Bet Yehoshua, published by Penn State University Press 2020. Yael, thank you for being with me today. Thank you for inviting me, it's a great privilege. Thank you. Uh, the privilege is all mine. Thank you for this masterpiece of a piece of scholarship and for your availability to share your erudition with us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be able to, to expand a bit on, on the subject. To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that inspired you to study literature in general and Israeli literature in particular? On my mother's side, uh, um, from a generation, from a family that goes back many generations in the land of Israel, um, and from my father's side, a, from a family that half of them were killed in the Holocaust and they came uh, pretty much immediately in May, immediately after uh, Israel was 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 established as a, as a place that could re- receive um, the refugees. So um, a very different family. My mother is from a Sephardic background in Jerusalem. My father is from an Ashkenazi, a Hungarian secular. Uh, background, um, and they met in Haifa. And I lived in Haifa until the age of four. At that time, my father decided to do a postdoc abroad, and we went, and then he got stuck abroad because there weren't jobs for people, for physicists like him. Uh, often the jobs dried up for physicists, and um, I grew up in Mexico in a city where there were hardly any Jews. There were a handful of Jews. We had a tiny community, no synagogue. 
in my home, we spoke Hebrew, but we were the only Hebrew speaking household in three million <laughs> inhabitants, most of whom were Catholic. Um, I was in an American school, which had a lot of English. And as soon as I finished high school, I returned to Israel. And um, eventually I made my way to studying literature. And um, from there, I went to specialize in this in the in the states. I got my PhD in the states, and uh, I got married and got stuck a bit abroad. <laughs> I, I I'm looking forward to eventually making uh, my way back to Israel. Thank you for sharing that. What inspired you to write this book? Uh, what would you like readers to learn from this book? I have had a long acquaintance with the works of Aleph Bet Yoshua. I had asked, I was asked early on to, 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 to write encyclopedia articles about him, to teach him and so forth. And so I became a, a kind of ex, expert and he also was in dialogue with me. Um, and so I had access to manuscripts in advance. I, I felt that I, I, I controlled the material pretty well. And so I said to myself, this is an amazing writer, a giant in Hebrew letters, a giant in world literature. Um, and one day, 50 years from now, somebody's gonna, is, is, is gonna come across one of his books. And their mind is going to be, you know, they're going to be blown away and they're going to say, who is this writer? What was he trying to do? What were the problems that he was facing that he was actually referring to? And I said, I want to write a book that then that person, maybe it's going to be a student uh, in some university or, or anybody, that person can then go to my book and it will open up the whole Alevet Yoshua world, his life and times and problems and his entire oeuvre. And then that person will be able to go back to that one book that they had encountered and to others by this writer, and they would understand a lot better what, what was at stake and what we saw those of us who are here now and who were deeply immersed in that oeuvre. Can you explain your book's central message and thesis? What contribution does your book make to the study of the writing of Aleph Bet Yehoshua? So I, I, my aim was to give a kind of in-depth analysis of specific Things, specific recurring themes, what I consider to be the major recurring themes and structures of A.B. Yoshua's plots, and also an understanding of his method of composition, like why he does things the way he does them, these patterns. I wanted to bring out the patterns in the methods of composition and in the themes and structures in addition, I wanted to give that bird's eye view 
so that from any chapter you can see the whole works, the whole over, the whole life and times and work. Um, so from that point of view, it's an integrative um, project, and it's integrative also in that I dialogue with all the scholarship on ABO Shua, and also with the major influences on his work. How long have you personally known Avraham Yehoshua? Where, when, and how did you meet? What met was your personal relationship like with him? Yes, I, mean, I met him when I was a graduate student, a PhD student at Princeton, and he was invited to give one advanced class on Hebrew literature. That was 30 years ago. And when the class ended, I was sad because it was such a great class. He is a fantastic teacher. You know, aside from being a a writer, you know, a, a creative writer, he taught Hebrew and comparative literature as that was like his job. That was how he supported himself and his family uh, for like from the 1960s late 60s, I think, until he retired just like uh, 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 15 years ago or something like that. Maybe I'm, I'm fudging the numbers a bit, but that was his career. He was a professor and he had a, a real talent for teaching. He did not give a, a huge amount of reading. It was depth analysis and a lot of discussion. That's what I love. And I was one of the people who were discussing the most. It was very enriching. And then when he left, I was sad. It was over. And all of a sudden, I get a letter with his address and his telephone number inviting me to visit him next time I was in Israel. I followed up. And uh, since then, you know, we've had... Uh, a dialogue and uh, we became friends you know after so many years and he is very approachable very warm and uh, caring and uh, he also understood that somebody like me who was getting a phd in literature abroad could be somebody who could explain his work eventually and i i accepted the challenge <laughs> How have recent months been for you personally in light of Avraham's passing away? How have you felt in the past couple of months in his absence? What were you feeling and going through in his final months of his life to the extent that you feel comfortable to share? Yeah. Um, last week, somebody came over for dinner and somehow I, I mentioned Yeshua, and I nearly started to cry again. Uh, for me, it's been a loss. Uh, you, you know, I haven't lost, you know, the closest relatives I lost were my grandparents, especially my grandmother to whom I was very, very close. And this is like, comparable I just 
it's changed my life, you know, because I can't, I, it's, it's just, it hurts. <laughs> yes. It hurts not being to, not being able to, to just, just reach out and talk even about all the obituaries. <laughs> like, do you see what they're saying about you? And I, I just, yeah, it's, it's, something that somebody that I was always in my thought and that I was felt very close to in my heart and you can't anymore and so he's left us all this legacy but and 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 he's there through a legacy but on the other hand it hurts even more because because you used to to being able to somehow connect also to the person and now, and and now it's it's gone. So it's a strange situation, <laughs> very strange for scholars to be in that situation. But not strange when it comes to Yoshua because he was such an approachable person, and he was uh, he had a warm, good relationship with many of of, of the scholars and many of the other writers. Everybody with everybody was a very and um, very you know just friendly, warm person and kind and um, and wily also because it also was to his benefit. So we knew, we knew that his days were numbered. We knew he had cancer. His wife died and he was crying and crying and, and he kept saying, enough, I've done my thing, I want to go. And I, and I, and I, and I tell him, you know, uh, I understand you. You deserve also to have your peace and your rest. But when it came, when the blow came, it was devastating. And I, I everybody feels that way. <laughs> How did Israeli society mourn Yehoshua? Can you comment on the discourses surrounding Yehoshua's life and legacy in Israel's in the Israeli media in recent months, both in the immediate circumstance of his passing and in the weeks and months after his passing? All over the world and in Israel too, in all, all the newspapers ran obituaries by people, uh, not necessarily, and all, also all the media you know, uh, radio and television and whatever, and um, not necessarily by the people who were closest to him and knew him the best. Um, for instance, Dan Meron, who was very, very close to him, it's the great scholar of Yiddish and Hebrew literature, Dan Meron. Uh, what they call the dean of Israeli letters, he 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 was on the phone with Yoshua every day. They were very close, and um, he just like went into a shell. Right, it could, it was so devastating <laughs> to lose the 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 friend. And um, and other people, for instance, his last two novels are dedicated to Sarah. Um, you know, I was I it's it's somebody who, who 
who became close to him in in the last couple of years and he and he wrote about uh, some features of her life in an art, he turned them into an artistic production but they relate to her life uh, you know she also didn't run to the press to to write obituaries but you know a, a lot of people wrote about their contacts with him and about a, just a general sort of encyclopedic overview of his life and works um i regret that he didn't receive a nobel prize he definitely deserved it for his originality for the quality of his writing uh for the for 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 the the way in which he ha has recurrent patterns of thoughts and structures but also always something very new and surprising um if for political reasons he didn't receive, receive a Nobel Prize. Is there a specific work of Yehoshua's that you are personally most moved by? Can you identify one that has inspired you personally in your own life? <laughs> there isn't one single work that inspires me personally in my own life, but there are scenes that sometimes pop into my mind when I encounter a certain problem or situation. Uh -huh. um, but my favorite novel is The Lover. And in fact, The Lover is the favorite novel of many young people. Uh, it's just super fun to read. It's all these uh, it's six characters who is very much influenced by William Faulkner. The American writer of the South, the United States, um, and there are these six characters that are encountering the same situations and are meeting each other. But you hear their perspective. There is an Arab teenager. There is a an old Sephardic grandmother who at first is pretty much dead, and then she she kind of comes. She's in a coma, and then she comes back to life, and 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 she's like such a powerhouse, and and then there is this garage owner, and all these things happen to the garage, and this Sephardic, you know, young man who all of a sudden comes back to Israel from Paris, and he gets into he gets swept into the Yom Kippur War, and all of a sudden he's in the Sinai under fire and he decides to 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 steal the the hat and the coat of some haredim of some religious ultra-orthodox people that had come to pray next to the soldiers and and he steals that and he runs away and escapes among them i mean the whole thing is ridiculous but it's very much a snapshot of the reality of life in israel too at, at that time after the yom kippur war and uh, it's absolutely fabulous, uh, fun, but um, his masterpiece is Mr. Money. Mr. Money is very complicated to read, but it, it's a, a literary experiment that was extremely difficult to do and, and, and that Joshua managed to do um, exceptionally well. It's five conversations told about told by five different people to interlocutors where you don't read the words of the interlocutor you only read 
what uh, what what one of them is saying and you have to reconstruct in your mind you have to guess what the other conversation partner is saying and each of the each of the conversations is set in a different historical period the whole novel spans more than 200 years and it's they come in and out of jerusalem it's very much about jerusalem but the conversations are set in different locations it's so daring so each conversation is also supposedly happening in a different language she pulls it off and it's one of the great historical novels uh, that have ever been written certainly about jewish history in your preface you mention his wife ika and you tell the following anecdote once so wait, wait a minute so uh yeah once the two of us drove to tel aviv after a lecture that he delivered at the ministry of foreign affairs in jerusalem when we covered when we arrived at his destination, I flung open the cab's door and asked his wife, Ika Zichonali Vraha, waiting at the curb in front of their apartment building after sending off their children, who had come there for dinner as they did every Thursday. How could she manage so well with someone so stubborn? This exasperation likely to be recognized by anyone who has befriended Yoshua is invariably mixed with gratitude for his warm and down-to-earth willingness to connect, assist, and explain. Yeshua may exasperate through his insistent pursuit of an idea, whatever, whichever happens to be foremost on his mind at any moment regarding the Jewish question and its many iterations, yet he is extraordinarily available to discuss it. Can you tell us about Yehoshua's wife, Ika? What was your relationship like with her? Can you describe her personal traits? Well, I didn't have a personal friendship or, or, or direct relationship with Ika. It was through bully. Alabed Yoshua, on a personal basis, he was known to his friends as bully. It means nothing in Hebrew, bully. It, he used to write it B-U-L-L-Y. I object to that. In Hebrew, it's Bet Vav Lamed Yud. <laughs> Again, means nothing. Um, in, in, he just wrote it like that without thinking that maybe in English people might think that he's a bully with a Y. <laughs> so I prefer to spell it B-O-O-L-I-E. Um, some high schoolers gave him that nickname. Some two girls in high school gave him that nickname. And that stuck to him. And he liked that name because he didn't like the heaviness of the Avraham or the commonality of, of you know, Avi. Uh, and his, his parents called him Avraham. His wife called him Bully. Everybody called him Bully. Um, he told me very early on in our uh, friendship, call me Bully. So I knew... Ika, to go back to your question, only when I was uh, like through bully. So, for instance, if we happened to be together at a conference, if we were invited together for a meal, um, and so I would chat with Ika as well as with bully. But my uncle, who lives in Aria, went to high school with Ika. Ika is also a nickname. Her name is Rivka. 
and 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 my uncle said that she was the the smartest girl in the class and very very independent and self-assertive and they all used to joke that she would be the last one to get married in fact she was the first one to get married because a bully saw her when she was still a soldier and he had just finished his army duty and he had gone to study literature and philosophy at the Hebrew University. He saw her and he fell madly in love and <laughs> she agreed to get married to him. And uh, this was a very, very special uh, relationship that they had. You don't see usually that kind of marriages. Um, it's a kind of symbiotic relationship where they were very much in tune with each other. And uh, he learned so much with from, from her because she was a clinical psychologist. So a part of his worldview, part of the way that he understands his characters and understands Israel is through a kind of Freudian and uh, um, a psychoanalytic analysis of world uh, which may or may not be realistic and valid but it was a structural uh, uh, conception for him and uh, in conferences for instance you would see Ika seated at the front row signaling to him that he shouldn't say too much about this <laughs> and or afterwards she would tell him something you know to make sure he or fix something i don't know they were very much <laughs> you know uh, he didn't like to travel without her um once we were my students had a whole uh class on abiyoshua's novels and we interviewed him this was before zoom we did it by skype and all of a sudden they saw ika his wife walking across the room and coming out and they were so happy that was the highlight of the whole interview was that they saw this normal situation where the wife is just part of his life because his books are so complicated the family relations are usually in dire straits and so i had told him that his life is actually very stable and his relationship with his wife is fabulous and his relationship with his children are you know he has three, they have three children normal children all of them are have professions all of them are well adjusted and married etc and it's hard for them to understand because the, the novels are in novels the families are so dysfunctional and i would tell him this and he would joke a bully and he would say tell your students i'm a square namely you know <laughs> i do my work at specific hours i have lunch with my wife i go from you know and when they saw that image of ika just naturally coming in out of the room and you know it it, it, it was it, it, when you actually see it you get it that this is just a, a man with a stable normal life you know, like the writer Magritte, who had a stable, normal life, although Yoshua's life was much more eventful and, and busy and, 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 you know, Magritte was a clerk um, and, and, and he had his wife and very bourgeois, but Magritte wrote, it, wrote this crazy 
you know, bizarre, magical, uh, sorry, painted, he painted these crazy, bizarre, magical um, paintings, and, and it's in, and very different from his uh, solid, uh, grayish kind of life. Thank you. In, in your words, uh, you write the following, also in your preface, somewhat like his character, Yosef Mani, the son of a Sephardic gynecologist at the turn of the 19th century in a more compact Jerusalem. The childhood, boyhood, and youth of Avram Yoshua in Jerusalem during the 1840s and 50s took place between his parents' modern Sephardic household, the secular Ashkenazi learning environment that they chose for him, and the traditional milieu of his paternal grandfather, a distinguished rabbi who at one time headed the Sephardic rabbinical court. Indeed, like Yosef Mani's career, the life work of his creator has been dedicated to defining his own national identity in relation to the needs and expectations of different types of Jews, Arabs, and foreigners across boundaries that are more or less permeable. Can you tell us about Yehoshua's early life? Where did he grow up? How did his family upbringing influence the person he would become in adulthood and his later writing? So, when Yehoshua became Bar Mitzvah in Jerusalem, it was the time of the siege of Jerusalem, a time uh, in which there was constant shelling. It wasn't clear at all uh, who would control Jerusalem. There was, because of the siege, there was no water, no food. For me, that period is very clear uh, in my mind because my mother lived through it too. My mother, uh, like Yeshua, she's not from a distinguished family like Yeshua, whose, whose grandfather was the head of the rabbinical court of the Sephardim, but she is also from this kind of Sephardic long-time residence of Jerusalem and uh, in a similar age group. And so they, I, I, I know how the houses, their house was bombed and her, my mother's grandfather was assigned to distribute water, one bucket a day per family. Uh, he, this was, it was a, a very trustworthy uh, um, job. It was not job, it was done, you know, without pay, but because, you know, somebody who really not give more nor less to anybody. Uh, and, and it was a terrible, terrible, difficult period in the life of uh, the country that was struggling to be and in the life of the Jerusalemites. But interestingly, Yoshua never wrote about this period. And I told him, why did you write about this period? I asked him and he says, really, why? And he couldn't answer. He couldn't answer why. Um, he skirted around it in Mr. Mani. But his coming of age coincided with the coming of age of Israel as a nation and with the establishment of Israel because it was a touch-go situation. It wasn't at all clear uh, that, is, is, that the fledgling country would not be obliterated uh, when, when it declared its, its uh, bid 
for independence. And the Jerusalemite residents were the ones who suffered the most by far. So uh, that never came into his fiction. He never spoke about it privately to me either. Only when I started asking him, why did you not uh, um, write about that experience in your life either? So in recent months, I had interviewed him about, about it and I have uh, like two or three hours of Zoom interviews about this and other other aspects of his early life um his mother who was born in morocco and came to israel in the 1930s as a 16 year old with her family and married the father who was from a, a salonican background in in jerusalem his mother insisted that uh, their young son and the, and his sister go to a to a to a sort of secular Israeli school, not to a religious school, to the Gymnasia Herzliya for for high school, and so Yeshua very much identified and 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 uh, and and grew up as a secular kind of. Um, average neutral Israeli he did not see himself as his grandfather did completely as a Sephardic Jew or even as his parents did as a kind of in-between chaos because so many so many different uh, groups of people were coming and changing and so forth Yeshua was very much invested in defining an Israeli identity that would accommodate all the different identities that you could see, especially in Jerusalem throughout his life, but especially at the time that you just mentioned, the 1940s and 50s when he was growing up. So um, out of all of this plurality, which has continued to this day, because if you go to Jerusalem today or to any place in Israel, you see people of so many different religions and colors and countries. And um, he, wa he wanted to say, yes, all this plurality is wonderful and its depth should be celebrated. But at the same time, what is an Israeli identity? And it's important to to put that up front and center, that Israeli identity. On page 78 in your book, you write the following. Yet, as in a standard buildings roman, in Yeshua's novels too, it is never enough to be just a doctor, garage owner, merchant, or musician. It is also necessary to be a committed lover with all that this entails. In other words, a spouse and a parent and a responsible caretaker of a family that functions as a nucleus of a nation. This is a tall order for representatives of a nation that so recently returns to sovereignty after a hiatus of over 2,000 years. But in, but in Yehoshua's view, and more generally in Judaism's, such is the individual and collective labor 
necessary to achieve a national reconstruction. What do you mean in this passage? Can you clarify and explain further? I, I can answer that in, in, with one phrase. You know, when you when you ask me what it means that it's a tall order for a repre- for the representatives of a nation that so recently returned to sovereignty after hiatus of over two thousand years. Um, why is it is it is it so hard to to reconfigure yourself in that situation is not only because it would be hard for any nation and any group of people, but because Judaism in particular is such a demanding religion. Judaism is so demanding of the family, of the individual. We have so many holidays and each of including Shabbat, and each of the holidays demand so much preparation and so much um, communal and 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 uh, uh, home life uh, that it, it takes a lot of resources to get organized at the level of the individual, family, community, nation, to what genre of literature, if any, do Yehoshua's novels belong? It's the genre of psychological realism. Mm-hmm. That's not exactly a genre, but a, a perspective in the sense that mm-hmm. that um, it goes deep into the minds of the characters, and the characters are immersed in a realistic scenario that you can recognize like i described before about the lover the aftermath of the yom kippur war for instance in a in an apartment in a couple of different apartments in haifa it's a place that you could go and see you know you know you could go see the places he's describing you can understand very well the time period so it's psychological realism but at the same time there there's a vein of the absurd. The plots themselves are based on a- absurd premises. So, for instance, the, the Lover, that was, by the way, his first full-fledged novel. He published it in 1977 after he had written uh, short stories and novellas that were more abstract. 1977, he was 40 years old. He felt mature enough to to write a full-fledged novel um and so the plot is that this other family this father of the family um his family is in dire straits it's a dysfunctional family and it's and his son what was deaf had been born deaf and was run over by a car when he was five years old and then they have this daughter she's a teenager she's acting up like a teenager and, and the wife is like in her own you know universe in her mind and, and the whole family is dysfunctional the husband and wife hadn't haven't had sex for a decade the wife is you know aging and 
he decides he's gonna well not it doesn't decide like that but he he brings this young man who is intellectually compatible with his wife and he's very happy that they should have an affair and then when that young man as i mentioned before gets drafted into the into the yom kippur war and he finds himself in the sinai desert under shelling by the egyptians and then he he absconds from there uh, the father of the family is looking for him so the husband is looking for the lover you know there are so many plays where the husband is looking for the lover but it's in order to kill the lover right in this case no he wants to bring the lover back to his wife he doesn't want to kill the wife he wants her to be happy he wants him to have this lover somebody who's compatible with him but he's running away so it's it's ridiculous it's absurd but and, and when you when it's first put in front of you you're like this is crazy but within three pages you're like yeah 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 we gotta find this lover and you buy into the story <laughs> and then at the very end again Yeshua exposes the absurdity of this absurd situation and opens up your eyes after having con- having led the reader to experience the absurdity and to accept it as normal as 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 it shows how it shouldn't be normal uh, uh, how the problem should be solved in a different way so that's the mixture between the psychological realism and and sociological realism well the realism itself is in in many times a portrait of society with the absurdity of the plot that makes us follow those plots with so much interest because they're so wacky in in your words you write the following in your preface ideally Yehoshua's novel should be interpreted on at least four simultaneous levels of signification according to the psychological troubles of his characters with close attention to the socio-political tensions of individuals from diverse ethnic religious national backgrounds who interact in Yehoshua's novels through their extended families and in their workplace via the comparisons he draws between secular Israeli life in the present and historical scenarios that throw contemporary Israeli life into perspective. And finally, as part of his preoccupation with Jewish identity as shaped by longstanding historiosophic conversations that go back to ancient times and that mix theology with legend and actual history in an entanglement that Yehoshua tries to pry apart. Can you share what you were intending to convey with this insight? I will answer very, very briefly because the whole book answers that question. Mm-hmm. In the example that I just gave from the lover, you could already see that there was attention to the individual psychology of the characters in the sense that each character has some kind of psychological trouble or like all of us in the world each one of us has some kind of situation at the moment that we are living through 
for good or, or for or for difficulties, but it's the psychology of the characters, of the individuals. But those individuals belong to certain families, they belong to certain ethnic religious or national backgrounds. That sociological level affects their individual formation and their possibilities and so forth. It affects their interaction with the other characters. And then uh, Yoshua, in addition to having the family context, also very much has the context of the workplace because it's in the workplace where the individuals from different ethnic religious and national backgrounds interact, right? And, and then what Yoshua does is that he, he, he brings them out of the workplace and into the families. Um, the, the third important level is the historical background. So as I mentioned just now in terms of the lover, the lover is set in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War, 1973. This novel starts in uh, 1973. It was published in 1977. So there is that immediate, well, he was writing it pretty much at the time that it was happening, but The, it's a historical context of the here and now in that case. He also has two actual historical novels, Mr. Manny and Journey to the End of the Millennium, which are set, you know, many years back. But he is very aware of the here and now as a historical moment that affects the future and that is constrained by the past. And part of the way that the here and now is historical and constrained by the past is through its engagement with myths and historiosophic concepts. Historiosophic means a kind of philosophy of history. In Jewish life, the philosophy of history comes from our, from our texts, from the Bible, from the Talmud and so forth. So when you think about Jewish history, it, it's not only it's not only the the material remnants, the artifacts, the archaeology, and the discussion about the the events that happened uh, and so forth, or those that didn't happen, to question whether they did happen or why were they portrayed in this manner. There is also the idea of the history. In, this, in Jewish history, the idea of redemption, every single holiday has to do with life in Israel, with, with agriculture, or with uh, celebrating uh, um, the, the community and the community's relationship with God. And our most important holidays, uh, Passover, Rosh, uh, Yom Kippur, uh, and, and um, um, and and uh, you know the, the holidays where you uh, the, the the people used to go up to Jerusalem to the temple. The idea of next year in Jerusalem, right? 
So the idea that whether you are there and you're going to the places that mark your identity or that you're not there, but eventually you will go there. The idea of redemption. So Yoshua is very much in dialogue with that. And in his novels, it's that those that are set in Israel, in the here and now, it's like, okay, so now we are back to these sites. Now we are back to national sovereignty. So what about this concept of redemption? Are we now redeemed? Um, and if not, what else do we have to do? So he's very much in dialogue, not just with the history, but with the historiosophic idea of history in order to, to create a modern Jewish national identity for the Thank hero. you. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, if I can ask you about another passage, um, very different in character, um, is from page 100, where um, the following narrative of the second night of Hanukkah is told. On the second night of Hanukkah, he visits his widowed father who suffers from Parkinson's disease. They light their menorah together with members of a Filipino family employed by Yari Sr. in his home. The six-year-old Filipino boy had learned about the holiday in the same school that Amos attended as a child. And though the Filipino family is presumably Catholic, their son is nevertheless eager to participate in this local holiday. He therefore stands beside the trembling grandfather, an unlit candle in his hand and a kippah on his head. Don't overdo it, Amos says, and attempts to remove the skull cap from the boy's head, but the old man allows the child to wear it. Little Hilario brings, sings the Hebrew blessings and lights a clay menorah that he himself had made at school, after which Amos invites him to repeat the entire procedure on the grandfather's menorah. His face is aglow with excitement. The boy requests permission from his mother to also sing a Hanukkah song. To Amos's relief, it is not Maoz Tzur, but an old song whose melody is modest and pleasing to the ear. And Amos reinforces it with some humming of his own. What is happening in this scene? Can you describe this episode for our listeners? What is noteworthy about this particular scene and the novel that it is found in? So this is from the novel Friendly Fire, uh, published in 2011. This, is, this scene is happening in an apartment in Jerusalem. And we have this old guy who is a widow, widower, and his son is visiting him during Hanukkah. The, the old man, in order to keep him at home rather than send him to an old age home or, or bring him to the home of his son or grand grandchildren, which is not really today in, in modern society as it used to be in, in, in pre-modern times, uh, they, they find him a caretaker. But 
not in order to be nice to the caretaker is coming from the Philippines, they invite the whole family to live with the old man. Um, and so it's the son and the baby and the husband and the actual caretaker hmm. the, 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 from the Philippines. And the son is going to school. Um, and so this creates an interesting scenario and a difficult sociological problem. Again, as you can see from a sociological, uh, civic perspective, from a um, religious perspective, uh, from an individual psychology perspective, how is this going to work? Uh, modern societies are facing the problem of foreign workers. Uh, how, what is their role in the modern society? What uh, rights do they have? Uh, what what duties, what rights and duties does the state have towards them? If they come on a contract and the contract ends, what do you do if they want to stay? Um, so Yoshua confronts those kind of issues in his fiction in order to make his readers, his primary readers are Israelis, think through the whole, the whole, the whole dynamics. And with Judaism, it's complicated because it's not only okay you're bringing people here on a contract; they are uh, needed, they are they are wonderful, and then and then what is is how are you going to integrate them into your society? Have you thought this through? So Yeshua pushes us to think things through. You know, Yeshua is interested on the sociological level, on all kinds of tensions and gaps in Israeli society. So the, the tensions and relationships between Arabs and Jews, between religious and secular um, individuals and families, between the rich and the poor, between Israel and diaspora, um, then uh, some those overlap sometimes or in different ways with uh, tensions between people from different ethnicities like Sfaladim and Ashkenazim. Whenever people would say to him, oh, you're Sephardic, are you telling a Sephardic story? He would say, no, I am Israeli. I'm interested in t telling the Israeli story. I'm interested in honing an Israeli identity and looking at all these interstices within Israeli identity. Um, and we see in this passage, which is set during a holiday, Hanukkah, we see um, an integration, but also some kind of tension between foreigners and locals. And it's on, on it's, it's like, is this child is from a Catholic family, he's going to a Jewish school, so he's learning all these holidays, he wants to participate what are the boundaries? What is, like, how far are you going to go? How far are they going to go? And he, he dramatizes those kind of issues. How does Yehoshua relate to Judaism and the Jewish faith in his novels? Can you relate the different ways that Yehoshua's works depict the Jewish religion? 
So as you mentioned before, Yoshua on his father's side came from a, 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 a family that was, you know, traditional religious faladim and his grandfather was honored as a, a distinguished rabbi and head of the um, of the Sephardi court in Jerusalem. His mother obviously also came from traditional religious Jews, but she didn't have much uh, need for religion or much interest in religion. The father himself also, you know, that was a time of great secularization in Jewish society, in Israeli society. So they kept kosher at home. They celebrated the holidays, but it was more in the grandparents' home and in the grandfather's synagogue where religion as such took place. And because Bully Abraham, his parents called him, did not send him to a religious school, he grew up, you know, with just mostly Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi uh, um, kids in Jerusalem from, from families that the, the parents were professionals and professors and etc. Secular people not keep aware. Um, Yeshua had every opportunity like to tell everybody that he was an, that he was an atheist. On the other hand, he was very interested in the mind of religious people, not only religious Jews in Israel, but also all religions. So many of his novels are set partly in other countries like India, um, um, Tanj um, in, 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 in um, Africa and uh, so forth. And so there, his Israeli characters, who on the most part are secular, meet people from other religions. And through their religions and through the way that those other characters from other places and other religions are dealing with modernization as well as traditional beliefs, from that they learn something about how they might deal with that tension between modernization and tradition. Yeshua was very interested in a kind of reformation of Jewish religion so that it would be so that it will be applicable to Israel today. How are Jewish-Arab relations depicted in Yehoshua's work? What comments does he make on the Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Arab conflict? This is the most, well, I was going to say this is the most important source of tension that he dealt with. And in, across his life, most of his life, yes, it was the most important uh, um, axis of tension that he concentrated upon, uh, but in later years also the, the tension between religious and secular has come to the fore. It was always there, but has come to the fore as, as just as important. And in fact, the, the tensions between Jews and Arabs, Israeli and Palestinians are not just ethnic, social, you know, uh, are, are, are complicated very, very much by religious identities. And in fact, 
it may be understood eventually that it is above all a religious conflict. So the the, the, the tension is both between a secular and religious mindset and between a national um, 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 ethnic identity. So this, this, these tensions were hugely important to him to explore and to work out. Jewish-Arab relations, so central to his fiction and to his political activism, I can say on one leg that was that what was especially important and urgent for him was to emphasize the relation, relation aspect of Jewish-Arab relations, to have the relationships, to work them out, to work out an understanding. That's the type of thing that he, as you saw even not regarding Arabs and Jews or Muslims and uh, Jews, but this Catholic Filipino boy in the midst of a Jewish holiday is like, this is the situation. What is the relationship? How did it come about? And where is it going? What do Yehoshua's works teach us about trauma? Um, so you had mentioned to me, Ari, that you are interested in the topic of trauma. Yes. And yourself, you're writing and researching about it. Um, it's not a topic that I have thought about, but I can tell you, for instance, trauma is always present in some way or another. Um, we saw, for instance, I mentioned before in The Lover, Everything that happens in that novel to the central family uh, is colored by that trauma of the accident and death. It's not entirely an accident. It's more complicated that happened to their five-year-old son and they lose their son. That trauma sets in motion a lot of what happens. Um, uh, 20 years later when we meet them in the context of the novel. But in terms of the expression of trauma, the most interesting uh, treatment of this is in Yoshua's masterpiece, Mr. Mani, where the, it's a multi-generational novel, and it's also this multi-generational trauma that is inherited by the Mani family but they don't even know about it because they're, the family is so such dire straits and they barely make it from one generation to the next. So they don't even know what happened to their ancestors, but they act certain ways that, that are a reflection of the traumas of their ancestors. So there is a, a primal trauma there uh, with the, 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 the first money in the narrative, uh, Abraham Mani, he, his son is behaving in ways that Abraham Mani cannot tolerate. And 
and Abrahamani wants to force his son to behave in a conventional Jewish way, to be a good husband, to have children, to do this, to be, a, and to go to the synagogue and pray like a Jew. Since he cannot force him, he ends up cooperating in the obliteration of his son, and then he he does he ensures the propagation of the lineage in ways that are unacceptable, sinful. That trauma is not known to any of the of the descendants. It's secret, but we see how it affects their choices and their behavior. Um, it's it's also Yoshua's way of interacting with certain historiosophic concepts mm. in Jewish tradition, Jewish in, from the Bible and Jewish uh, myths, and and so he he plays with that. You know. How does Yehoshua interact with the Bible? Can you describe the ways in which characters, plot lines, names, and scenes in his works wrestle with the Bible and reinterpret biblical stories? Uh, so thank you with this question. It's perfectly related to what I was just saying, because what Yehoshua was playing with in that, in that situation that I just described with the Abrahamani and his son that was not doing the things that Abraham wanted him to do. Um, Yoshua utilizes vocabulary from Akedat Yitzchak, from the biblical story of the binding of Isaac. Mm -hmm. He uses vocabulary from that episode in order again and again to revisit that episode and saying, okay, what are these children being bound to? And um, what are the consequences? But what Yael Feldman, a, a, a very astute scholar, observed is that when Yoshua writes about the binding of Isaac, about the the about what Abraham does to his son, they almost kills him. He threatens to kill him because God said so. And at the last moment God says, Thank you for your trust in me and thank you for for carrying out my wishes, but I'm I'm gonna spare your son and I'm gonna spare you. That trauma, Yoshua views it as a deeply embedded trauma in the original psyche. He represents it in his fictions in ways that are in fact more edible than Akedaic. But what I mean by that, and what Yael Feldman actually explained very beautifully, is that he thinks, Yoshua thinks he's writing about the Akedah, about a son who, that is being bound by a dominant father and a sin is being done to the son. But in fact, if you look at the dynamics more carefully, 
it's an edible situation. It's, it's also the son that is threatening to kill the father and, and marry the father's wife. So the two are bound together. <laughs> If you like to, to go with that um, metaphor, and Yeshua is very well became very aware of the archetypal dimension. It was brought to his attention by another uh, critic, Mordechai Shalev, uh, that he but he's not quite fully aware of how much he uses the Oedipal dimension in those situations that are uh, supposedly dialoguing with. In another passage, you, you write the following. Even this ideology is a secular adaptation of the biblical Hashivenu Vinashuva. Return us to you and to the land, and we will then follow your commandments from Echa or Lamentations 521, chapter 5, verse 21 where the prophet conveys to God a plea for redemption as a prelude for atonement. From his earliest short stories to his most recent novels, Yoshua has been interested in this relationship between redemption and self-repair, a secularized variation of atonement. And the ultimate repair that preoccupies him is the transition in Jewish history from a state dispersed of dispersed vulnerability to a modern Israeli sovereignty envisioned as a stable, inclusive, and creative entity by stressing the weakest links between the private and professional troubles of his characters, Yeshua shows that his memunim over the collective welfare can only rise up to an adequate degree of responsibility if they are also willing to repair themselves from page 77. Can you share the context of this passage? And can you comment on the themes of repentance and redemption in Yehoshua's writings more broadly? Yeah, so this is very important. It's not re repentance uh, and redemption that Yeshua, like Yeshua is dealing with those concepts, showing that they are part of the Jewish consciousness. But what he's interested in is repair. To take those those concepts and bring them down mm -hmm. to a doable mm -hmm. work of repair at the personal psychological level, at the level of the family, at the level of the sociological meeting places like the workplace, mm -hmm. and especially at the national level. So the ultimate repair that preoccupies Yoshua is this transition mm. Jewish history from a state of dispersed vulnerability to a modern Israeli sovereignty envisioned as a stable, inclusive, and creative entity. This is essentially Yoshua's understanding of national normalcy, his main guiding ideal that Israel should be a stable, inclusive, and creative national entity um, and so he has certain uh, uh, characters that means the one in charge of for instance in 
Adam in the lover, he's the owner of a garage. Um, um, there is the man that is in charge of human resources of a bakery. And those kind of people that are in charge of, they themselves need a lot of work to repair their own traumas and their own uh, attitudes towards their spouses and so forth. But it is, they're invested with tremendous responsibility. And it is through them, once they can start to understand that they should repair themselves, that they can start to repair their relationships with other groups of people beyond the family, from other religious ethnicities and, and national identities, and, and create this uh, culture that should be as stable as possible. And he believes that that stability comes from being inclusive and creative, but it also has its limits. I mean, how much can you include and do and still have an identity? So it's not prescriptions that Yeshua gives, but explorations so that the readers will think it through. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Can you describe Yehoshua's personality? What was it like to be around him? Um, I always argued with him. He was very argumentative and people argued with him. I particularly argued with him because as you can see, um, I admire him so much. I know his work inside out. But he always had something in his mind that he was preoccupied with and he wanted to push that idea. And I just don't necessarily agree with that idea or this other idea. And so I would argue with him and I would bring him counter arguments from his own novels and from things that he said before and he would get exasperated. <laughs> so we would end up yelling at each other. Mm. So in my appendix... Um, my appendix is an imaginary conversation, an imaginary uh -huh. telephone conversation, uh -huh. such as could have could have happened because many yes. things took place. But this isn't an actual conversation that I recorded and I transcribed. But it's very playful, um, uh -huh. and so and it's written in the style of his masterpiece, Mister Mani, where you hear only the words of one interlocutor and you have to reconstruct what the other person was saying at the same time. So um, so that is, if you read that appendix, you get you get a taste of what my relationship was with him. We were always like trying to work things out because Israeli identity is important to us, uh, um, that, 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 that morality and so forth. So we would, um, argue about these things and but people Yoshua was very warm and personal to people he knew about people's families he he you know he put up his barriers he liked to have his private time his private space but at the same time you whenever you spoke to him you felt like you're speaking to a, 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 an intimate person, not not a stranger, 
and not somebody super important and puts airs on. And I think so now now that you know when after he died, so many people came forth and said something similar, you know. They all felt that he had been nice to them. <laughs> what is your unique about your book's contribution to the study of Yehoshua? Um, would you like to share where this book might be situated amid current scholarship on Yehoshua? Um, thank you. Well, a lot of current scholarship, not just on Yehoshua, but on all literary works, is oriented towards identity politics. And in specifically in relation to Yehoshua, every time he published a new book, which was often um, leading scholars and also PhD students and and lay people who read literature at a very sophisticated level would publish uh, essays about the new work. Mm. Some of those essays were then reworked into longer, more sophisticated essays, but it was an, an immediate assessment of what he had just written. Mm. And also, on the, uh, and also more recently, more and more, as I said, towards identity politics. I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in a bird's eye view, in picking out the major recurring themes and structures of his plots and methods of composition. I was also interested in going into a dialogue with everybody else who has written about Yoshua. And so I hope that all of this produces a work that will merely be a stepping stone for a long continuing dialogue in my time and also after my time. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, if you don't mind, do you remember where you were when you found out that Yehoshua had passed away and what had gone through your mind when you first learned the news? Ari, I, uh, I, uh, I, I was uh, that evening when my husband and I went to sleep. I said to him, "Tomorrow morning, I'm going to call Bully, because I haven't spoken to him for a couple of weeks, and I want to see how he's doing." In the morning, I walked down the stairs, and my husband came next to me, and he said, "Yael." There's no one to call. Wow. Gosh. And then the next few days were a whirlwind, just a whirlwind. I had my own Shiva in the sense that everything that I was about to do and doing and where it was secondary, tertiary, I put it aside. I was completely focused on trying to sort out what's happening in Israel, speaking to the people that were closest to him that I am also in touch with. Um, preparing my own kind of obituary that was published in the journal Fathom, that is published mm. out of um, England, Fathom uh, Journal, uh, and mourning. In total pain, I took 
I mean, even though we know that his days were numbered, but we didn't expect it. Nobody expected it that quickly on sun, that suddenly. And uh, we get to say goodbye. I mean, we talked about his death all the time. We talked about his death with everybody. He said he's done. <laughs> wow. Like, but, but still, and you'd think that after being prepared for so many months, even years, you would kind of say, okay, he got what he wanted. He wanted to rest next to his wife. And he's got, you'd think maybe after a year that will console me, you know, the way it consoled me that my grandmother, she wanted to rest already in 94. She got to rest. So when I miss her, I say, okay, at least she got what she wanted and she's resting now. But with Yoshua, I'm still very much upset you know, that that he's left us. And I'm still at that stage because mourning has many stages. And I took my favorite pictures of him and I put them around the kitchen where I could see them all the time. And that he was so present for me. And that's what I wrote in my obituary that he's not gone, that long live, you know, the champion of normalization and and that his ideas should continue to be with us. But I miss him. <laughs> yeah, I will miss Thank him always. I, I can't imagine how you cope with his loss, um, especially in light of how close you were with him, uh, your personal relationship with him, your investment in preparing this book. Um, I can't imagine what you are going through and have been going through in light of his passing. You know, I don't, I, I don't even have any relationship with his children, even though I did have communications with Ika. Uh-huh. and so forth but I don't he, he didn't want us to have like Dan Milan for instance and some of the other friends they do have some communication with his three children um, or with some of them and I, I am abroad so I, I don't don't have that kind of communication but it, it, they are mourning their father as somebody who was present all the time in their lives and their children's lives. I'm mourning a scholar that, with whom I was in dialogue, just for instance, I'm very interested in Dickens and I mm-hmm. love Dickens. I wish I could talk to Dickens, but yeah. And, and, and I, and I, and, and I wish he could live forever Dickens, but in this case, I actually did talk. And so when I read his works, or when anything happens, there is that loss of not being of that dimension of the living dimension, like you say. So not to compare at all to people who were, you know, really close to him on a daily basis and so forth. But it's an extraordinary relationship as a scholar. Mm. Did he know about the book that you wrote about him? Did he have anything to say about your scholarship on him? Yeah, he loved it. And he kept asking for more and more copies that he wanted to give to his translator and to his friends and to his... And wow. It's a bit hard because this book is still in hardcover and they put the price very high. They're going to soon um, make a paperback edition. 
and then the price will be lower, much lower, but we were trying to send him more copies and I would bring him more copies. Um, you know, he didn't read it cover to cover because he never read this, the, um, the work on him, but he had it next to him and he, and he told me he's constantly flipping through and, and he's happy with it. Thank you for sharing. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, do you mind sharing what you're working on next as your subsequent project? Are you working on anything now as a current project? So I wear two hats. I also work in the field of uh, English literature of the 19th century, and I used to also write about Latin American uh, Jewish literature. But in terms of Yoshua, right now, um, we're, we're working on two collected volumes of essays. One, mm -hmm. Both of them will be in English, Well, one will be more of a general essays about Yoshua's works and an updated um, approach um, with scholars from all over the world. The second volume will be about Mediterranean uh, identity and the Mediterranean focus of Yehoshua's uh, 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 imagination. So Yehoshua very much felt Israel to be part of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean identity. And when I talked before about the different ethnicities and religions and the past and the present, when you think of Israel as a Mediterranean entity, that becomes very easy to understand because the Mediterranean reminds us of Greece and Rome, and it reminds us of North Africa, which is Muslim, and it reminds us, or, or, or Turkey, and it reminds us of, of uh, you know, movement across water and land and so forth and all these different ethnicities, religions uh, that are rooted in a very long history, but at the same time trying to be modern, it's easier to deal with those concepts when you put them in their Mediterranean con context. That regional identity was very important to Yoshua, so we were putting together essays about that. Also, my book is being translated into Hebrew. Uh, it'll come out in Hebrew in about a year. And more broadly, I remain interested in the relationship between history and fiction, how fiction portrays history and how much fiction there is in history, historiography, and teaching. Teaching is very important to me. I, I love to teach. I love to have contact with students. Thank you. I could not be more appreciative of the time you shared with me in dialogue today, and I could not be more appreciative of all the sacrifice you invested in writing, researching, editing, and preparing this book for the benefit of all of us. I could not be more grateful for the sacrifice, the self-sacrifice involved in bringing this book on Aleph Bet Yehoshua to reality. 
I did stay up many, many nights to write it, but I wouldn't call it a self-sacrifice. It's, you know, my own vocation to be a scholar, to be a writer, uh, to be a teacher. And so um, it is what I, well, we all have a, a job to do. And I think this is one of the nicest jobs to do. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host, Ari Barbalas on the New Books in Israel Studies channel of the New Books Network. I have been in dialogue today with Dr. Yael Halevi Weiss. She is the chair of the Department of Jewish Studies and associate professor of English and Jewish Studies at McGill University in Montreal. We have been discussing her new book, The Retrospective Imagination of Aleph Bet Yehoshua, published by Penn State University Press 2020. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.